Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Brendan Klinkenberg and Brittany Spanos. We're going to be talking about the life and music of Mac Miller, who died at the age of 26, which is an awful thing. He was really talented, and we thought we'd devote an episode to him. Brittany's going to be talking later about a ridiculous thing that happened in relation to this death, which was an apparent overdose, which is that people online were somehow blaming Mac's ex Ariana Grande for this, and that's part of a, a long-standing trend in people's thinking, which is fairly disgusting and ridiculous, and we'll get to that. Brendan, Mac was a really interesting case because his debut album, Blue Slide Park, which came out all the way back in 2011, he was super young, wasn't good. It wasn't great. I don't think it's that bad personally, but it certainly wasn't great. It was, certainly was not a masterpiece. Rolling Stone gave it, I think, two and a half stars, but Pitchfork gave it a rare one out of 10 ranking which, as you were saying earlier, is a little bit of a stunt ranking. It, it, but that's something that, when you get slammed that hard with your debut, it's something that tars an artist, and that he reacted pretty strongly to all the negativity and turned it around in a way that's, that's really amazing and unique. Could you take us through that a little bit? So Mac was, um, he read the reviews. That's like kind of one of the things that defined his career. He was very interested in what critics thought of him. He was interested in improving his music. A lot of the reactions to his first album, which like capped off a series of mixtapes that he made when he was in high school, was really a reaction to the scene that people thought Mac Miller was part of, which was burgeoning at the time. Um, a lot of people called it frat rap. So it was kind of the stuff that you heard from Asher Roth and this guy like Sammy Adams and all these like very like vaguely problematic white dudes making hip hop that like college kids were supposed to party to. And Max was obviously a very carefree white dude rapping um but he was always a little better but his album kind of sold better got more attention and he was seen as the poster child for this stuff um he always had like a facility with rapping that was a little better and a more of an in-depth appreciation for hip-hop and like old artists well let's hear from his debut party on fifth avenue just to get a sense of where he started from where my kids at these motherfuckers hating sounding funnier than Sinbad I'm ill as the pills that they give you when you collapse this that the other kiss your mother with that mouth we the assholes that she so even on the first album there's a little sign of him knowing the history there's, there's an interpolation of It Takes Two you mm-hmm. know um, which he didn't sample he kind of replayed it seems like yeah yeah and people at the time got kind of mad about that kind of stuff but in retrospect it kind of shows an artist who like mac even from the beginning of his career was like very into telling people that his favorite rapper was big l he had this knowledge and appreciation for old school rap that none of his peers had and kind of would blossom into this facility with rapping that most people didn't see the potential for when he was first coming out and you know even some of our listeners might not be familiar with big l and big l was uh, a rapper from harlem who was tragically cut down at the very beginning of his career but in the 90s before his death you know he was up there with Mm jay-z it was a serious discussion over who was better jay-z or or big l um and i did see an interview with mac and we'll be playing some of my interview with mac in a little bit but i did see an interview where he was you know he, he really prided himself on having discovered big l and having that distinction of an influence that other people his age certainly wouldn't be aware Mm of yeah and like the people that he was being grouped in with were not talking about big l he was sampling like lord finesse and these kind of these people that if you're going to try and look at him as this white kid from pittsburgh who doesn't really know what he's doing like he 
didn't really fit in that box from the very beginning. And then you kind of see that develop. He takes the critical reception to Blue Side Park pretty hard and immediately starts to figure out what's next, and it leads to a lot of artistic development. Let's hear Big L's Ebonics for a second just to get a sense of him. When I'm lifted, I'm high. When new clothes on, I'm fly. Cars is whips and sneakers is kicks. Money is chips. Movies is flips. Also cribs is homes. Jacks is pay phones. Cocaine is no... I just wanted an excuse to play Big L. <laughs> But yeah, so then Mac's second album was a real breakthrough. Yeah, so in between um, his major labels, his next one would be called um, Watching Movies with the Sound Off, and then in between Blue Side Park and that, he had a mixtape called Macadelic, and they both kind of see him start to uh, abandon that party rap sound that he was like recording for his the whole first album. Um, he moves to L.A., he uh, starts working with these beat scene producers he has a couple songs with flying lotus who kind of is a juggernaut in the la experimental rap scene um he starts working with a lot of rappers like vince staples and earl sweatshirt who are these at the time like super young and way smaller than him but he sees their like rapping potential and they're both huge names now kind of Um, yeah vince staples said basically there would be no vince staples music without mac which is a huge statement yeah. yeah so mac's album netted him a lot of money and he immediately started to kind of spread that wealth he had the famously like the first independent number one album in i think 16 years with blue side park so it was critically reviled but commercially insanely successful so he moves to la builds a studio in his house and then starts inviting just artists he thinks are interesting and like produces a full album for vince staples and it should be mentioned that you know mac one of the things that was uh, really cool and interesting about him he was a musician, you know, of course you're a musician if you're a rapper, but he he played a bunch of instruments and a producer. He played piano. He played a ton of stuff and was, you know, jamming at a level where he would jam with, you know, like Thundercat and stuff. Mm-hmm. What's your watching movies, the song from his second album? The posturing uh, got less and less as the albums go on, I would mm-hmm. say. Yeah. Uh, there's still a little bit of that here. But yeah, so right, you can produce the whole album for Vince Staples. Yeah, and like you can even hearing on that, like it's not so far removed from Blue Side Park, but it's a lot like muddier and murkier. It's playing with a lot of darker tones but also the themes are getting a lot darker this is the start of him rapping about his own death kind of a lot that's a running theme and it's not in the self-mythologizing way like Tupac did it was like an actual he thought about his own death very often like what it would do to the people around him and like what would cause it and you know through all of this he was developing a a substance abuse problem Mm -hmm. yeah so this is about the time that he he was very public and he would talk about this like in very frank terms all the time but he um Developed an substance abuse problem with lean, which is, you know, a very popular drug for rappers. He would go through periods of sobriety and relapses all the way through the up until the end of his life. It was a big part of both his music and his personal life um, and something that he like struggled with, but also thought about, it seems like pretty clearly. Yeah. And when I spoke to him, he seemed pretty solid in his sobriety, but also acknowledged it's a struggle, which is always the case. It got to the point we were talking about this before we went on air. You know, everyone's pointing to a tweet that uh, Jay Z tweeted, where he, you know, he he was talking about all his favorite rappers, and Mac Miller was the one sort of white rapper that he, he gave a little love to. <laughs> yeah, and that that's a big deal. And then there's a picture. Yeah, Mac, uh, the, Mac framed it. <laughs> Mac, Mac printed it out, you know, giant size, and and literally framed it on his wall. And who could blame him? Yeah, I mean, that was, I think, 
w- one of the things was that was really important to him was respect from his peers. And then, obviously, if you get a shout-out from Jay-Z, this was after Jay-Z was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He was kind of thanking a lot of the people that he saw as paving the way and then kind of trying to anoint. It was very stream of consciousness. He was, like, talking about, like, how black rappers are great. And then he was like, but some white guys, too. Shout-out to Mac. And, yeah, that must have meant the world to him. And again, we were kind of building up to it, but how did it get to the point where, you know, if Jay-Z, of all people, was sort of thinking one white rapper popped to his mind and it's Mac Miller, what were the things that kind of built Mac Miller in the estimation of of the culture that would get there? I think it's kind of what he always wanted to be better. So every album you saw improvement, he was to start, you could argue about the substance of what he was rapping about in that early stage of his career, because it's like very carefree music. But he was always preternaturally talented as a lyricist. Like, he was always had a turn of phrase. He was always able to write a beat in a very clever way. And then as soon as he starts to dive into more thematically and musically ambitious stuff, he's suddenly up there with, like, the other great people that are working. Every project that he released, with a couple exceptions, usually got better than the last. And that's the kind of thing. He died very young, but his career was actually about 10 years long. Yeah, So when you have that kind of consistent improvement and more people take notice every time you put an album out at the end of a 10-year process even if you started at like a pitchfork 1.0 people are going to really respect you um and mac is kind of one of those people who just committed to getting better and that's a big part of why people respected him so much and like i was saying there was some posturing especially in the first album but at the same time he was true to who he was he you know he he was jewish he was bar mitzvah and there's references to that mm-hmm. from the very first album flat he says uh, something to the effect of like i think of my people who died in the holocaust and it just makes me glad to be alive and stuff like that and that's that's an unusual sentiment yeah. uh, for hip-hop and i appreciated the sort of you know the the realness of that yeah and i think it's also one of those things max started rapping when he was about 14 and was putting out mixtapes that people were listening to by 16 and i've been listening to a lot of mac in the past week for our coverage And overwhelmingly, I'm just kind of like, I'm glad what I was writing about and working on at 16 isn't, was not put out there. He matured a lot. And he just, a big part of that was he had to mature publicly. So when I spoke to him, it was 2016. And it was for his album, The Divine Feminine. And by that point, he was dating Ariana Grande. Brittany, maybe you want to jump in here. What was the perception of them as a sort of celebrity couple when they started dating? Well, their career, at least Mac had always been linked with Ariana's career. He was featured on one of her first big singles, The Way. And so they had known each other for about five years, I think. Yeah, they had known each other since he was around 21. So they had worked together a lot and then they started dating and they dated for two years. Fans always knew that Mac Miller was a big part of Ariana's life. I think people were kind of expecting that they would date. The way it was like people started to believe that they were going to start dating then, but they didn't. So it was always kind of expected, I think, at least for their fan bases. There was a really funny thing, which is a while ago after their breakup, Ariana was responding to the idea that it was an album about her. And she said, no, it wasn't an album about me. Uh, just this song, Cinderella. And this song, Cinderella, is the raunchiest sex song I've ever heard <laughs> in my entire life. I mean, it, it's it's like practically pornographic. And it was fairly hilarious, at least to me, that she felt the need to be like, no, 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 just just that song that's like, you know, <laughs> if you listen to it, you'll know it's, it's just TMI. If you want to know TMI about me, uh, just listen to that one song. But let's hear The Way, if we can. I'm making- 
feel so fine, make you feel so fine. I hope you hit me on my celly when I sneak in your mind. You a princess to the public, but a freak when it's time. Said you better be feeling lonely, so you sleeping in mine. Come and watch me. So there's also a duet uh, called My Favorite Part on the Divine Feminine. I, I really love that song. Uh, and as I told Mac, I first heard it, it just came up on some playlist. And I had no idea what it was. Uh, like, I didn't know it was him. I didn't even know if it was an old song or a new song. And I was just like, this is some really soulful shit. And he was, that really pleased him. He really liked that. Um, but let's hear that song. I know you fall too small Before things come together They have to fall apart It's been a while since I've been sober so in my interview, which uh, again was in 2016, he was actually in a shopping mall in South Africa when he called because a tour shop and a tour stop there, and he was he was like picking up the, a jersey from like the local soccer team so that they'd get you know to kind of make the crowd happy that night, and you could kind of hear him in the middle like just stopping to say hello to random people in the South African mall. And it was it was a, a totally uh, very chill conversation. But let's hear what he had to say about how that particular duet came together. Well, I just wanted it to be something really simple as far as instrumentally. Um, I like I I uh, I put that hook together like and then I stayed up the whole entire night going back and forth whether I was going to sing or rap on it, and then. Like, I couldn't decide, and, I, and then I just went to sleep, and I was like, I give up, and woke up, and decided to just sing. There was possibly a little uh, courage from from uh, John Jameson involved, but just like, I don't know, just I just went for it, and then like, um, I hit Ariana up to get on the record, and and. We did. We went over to a studio and worked on her part. Personal shit aside, I mean, she has chops for days. Did you have any insecurity about like, oh shit, I'm gonna have like someone who's compared to Mariah Carey singing next to me? I'm gonna sound ridiculous. Hey, you know what I mean? Was it was that in your head at all? Um, you know what? It really wasn't because it's like I'm like I said, I'm not the like I'm not trying to to do that. Right. You know, like I think like that's what she. When she comes in, she's supposed to sound like angelic, and she's supposed to sound like, wow, this is amazing. You know, like, I'm just capturing an emotion. And then, like, our voices together sound like, uh, sound how they sound. So it's like, um, you know, like, I'm not, I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to compete with her singing in any, at any day. Never. I mean, I, 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 but like, I have my emotion that I'm, I'm putting into that record, and it's one that I can't do unless I sing like that. How aware were you the possibility of, you know, make a record like this is always a danger of becoming too soft or too sappy, given its theme and subject matter and everything? Like, how how aware were you of that challenge, and, and how, how did you try to avoid it? Man, I don't think about that shit, man. <laughs> it's like, I've, I've had every kind of perception about me you can think of. Uh-huh. So, like, all I'm thinking about when I'm making music is the music that I'm making. Like, you know, I'm not, I'm not worried about how it's going to be perceived. I'm not worried about if people are going to think that I have no business doing this or, or that if I come back and rap that I, that now I've already sang. So it's like, man, fuck all that. Like, I'm just creating different planets. So like, <laughs> you know, 
people can en- people can enjoy them, come to them, like or not. It's not. Um, I I don't know. Getting tied up into the whole like what the perception of Mac Miller means to the music I'm making is counterproductive. You know, I'm just like creating. We're talking about the life and music of Mac Miller. And we're playing a little bit of audio from my 2016 interview with Mac Miller. We were talking about his album, uh, The Divine Feminine, which was a, a real breakthrough for him. There's stuff on it as we, we played a song called uh, My Favorite Part that with Ariana Grande, his then girlfriend, that, that really isn't hip hop at all. Uh, there's a lot of his uh, live instrument playing on there. There's a lot of him singing, which was a new thing, you know, and he actually had a really cool soulful voice uh so it's a little bit in that like everlast <laughs> vein like like it's funny how some people there's certain veins that people who rap sometimes fall in when they when they sing and that's slightly that but he like he definitely had legit talent as a singer but in general right it, it really was a, a step forward i think universally acknowledges that yeah so if you kind of look at max career he obviously starts as this kind of like high school rapper who starts to rap for college kids and it's all partying and then Blue Side Park comes out and he enters like a second act of his career where he's working with ex- like interesting producers trying to make almost like this backpack rap for like the LA avant-garde scene um, working with a ton of young rappers and then with 2016 coming around he enters like a whole new phase where he's working with live instrumentalists like Thundercat um, you were mentioning earlier that he was himself like a talented musician and that starts to really come through and then The Defined Feminine is this album that has a lot of breathing room in a way that like a lot of rap albums don't. He starts singing a lot. He's like very, very comfortable with like a song not really doing too much. It's like a very calm, happy, vibey album. And some of it actually is, I think, uh, it's sobriety as, mu- as much as anything. It's it's being in love, sober, all that stuff was kind of coming together. Although, the, uh, like we said, there was a sort of denial that it really was as a whole about Ariana. But you can feel it. It's it's mellow. And he was in a, a mellow place when I spoke to him, clearly. And, you know, he's, as we heard in the interview clip we just played, you know, he's he was talking about, like, making little planets with his music. There was something, you know, there was a hippie side to him, you know, for yeah. sure. I think that, like, when I listen back to that album, it just sounds, it's hard to say what accounts for this, and I'm sure a lot of things in his personal life got him to this place, but it sounds really confident. Like, it's not the album that anyone expected him to make, and it was, I think, a real stride forward for him as an artist. He was suddenly, like, trying new things. He was writing songs that weren't rap songs, and I thought it was, like, a real decisive move from someone who already had to, like, reinvent himself once, where he'd had to work really hard for his reputation as a rapper and, like, get the respect of people like Jay-Z. And then he's like, you know what I'm going to do next? I'm going to start singing about love. Yeah. He doesn't have a traditionally good voice, but I think he has a very open voice. I think it's one of those things where you can kind of hear him straining to hit the notes, and it just makes it feel a little more personal. And I think that album, like, really worked for him. It kind of shifted him into a new gear. He liked a lot of different music. He talked about um, his dad played him a lot of Bob Dylan in fact, his dad apparently would actually pick up a guitar and sing him Bob Dylan. It was that kind of thing. He liked Radiohead. He told me that the first hip-hop album he ever heard was was by Outkast, and he was immediately kind of just like hypnotized by it and drawn into it and was immediately trying to rap along. But I, I did ask him about singing, about the transition to singing, and it actually starts out, my bad, it starts out with, I asked him about Rick Rubin, who had become like, he wasn't producing him. But he was a spiritual mentor mm-hmm. to him, and which is a you know probably if you know Rick Rubin probably 
a couple albums down the line, maybe Rick would have become his producer. But he was hanging out. He was playing music for him. And I asked him what Rick Rubin meant to him and what he learned from him. And then we talk a little bit about his singing. So we'll hear that. Um, it was a lot of life lessons. I think, like, the, the biggest life lesson I, I learned was just, like, being still. Like, the how important it is to just to quiet your mind a little bit and just being honest with yourself and just to slow down. Yeah, like, also from, from Rick, like, I also gained a lot of confidence because I remember I played him this music I was working on. It was, like, some weird other shit um, that never came out. And I played it, and he was like, I've never heard anything like this. Huh, and I was so geeked about that. That was yeah, there's so many albums. It was one of the albums I was working on. That and, and being patient. You know what I mean? Patience. But it, it gave me, like, to be able to play him something and him to be excited about it was really awesome. You mentioned that when people uh, compliment your singing, you blush. That was a while ago because you, you were kind of insecure about your singing. I mean, and you sing a ton on this, on this record, uh, comparatively speaking. I mean, what has the process been like of, of becoming maybe more comfortable with, with singing and being melodic and, and finding your voice a, a, as a singer? I think, you know, just knowing that it's my voice, you know, and, and that's what makes it unique and that I'm not going to be, you know, this completely classically trained spot on singer <laughs> who has this ridiculous vocal range. Like, I'm going to have my own voice. And I think it's just like a journey of getting more and more comfortable with that. Because it feels like being naked a little bit. Like, you mean, you're just like kind of out there and it's just kind of becoming more and more comfortable with the fact that my voice is mine and like not like I'm not going to sound like Justin Timberlake. It's not going to happen. <laughs> and that's OK, because I'm going to sound like me. and that's kind of like just been a process of doing that and just going for it and failing. You know, trying something out and it's sounding horrible sometimes. That's fine. Singers are sort of non-singers who do sing, like Drake or whatever, who who help you be comfortable with, like, being out there as, like, a, the kind of singer you are, which is, like, an imperfect singer with a kind of a cool character. Like, like who, who helped you kind of get used to that idea? There's no person that I've really listened to that has been, like, a, oh, if he can do it, I can do it type thing. Yeah. You know? It's really just, like, letting it happen, you know? I mean, like, having random people say that I have a nice voice is wild to me. But I think the more also, like, singing live huh. also is a big help. Just be, It's just because then you, you do it, and that's kind of the most you're, like, out in the open that you could be. You know, there's, like, there's no, like, sitting there and getting, putting, like, reverb on it to make it sound right it kind of is what it is right so I, it's just repetition and practice and like the more i sing the more comfortable i am with it and the more i hear myself singing on a record the more comfortable like the more i get used to my own voice you know and and i stop you know i just stop worrying about what is quote-unquote good you know and bad it's just like more just what I do. You know, Brendan Mack was mentioning that there's all these albums. Even at the time, I was aware of like some jazz album he had, and so there's there's like a bunch of stuff 
probably that that's in his vaults, right? That he was working on. Presumably, um, he talked a lot. He had he had big plans. Um, he'd worked on a lot of stuff with a lot of people, and that never came out. I don't know if it will or it's a thing that he wants to put, like wanted to put out. But it was definitely he was trying a lot of stuff, and I think that's like very important to understand. Like when you look at this artistic development, like Divine Feminine didn't just like pop into his head. He was meeting new people, finding new collaborators, talking to people like Rick Rubin, and started to rethink like what he wanted his sound to be and like what kind of music he wanted to be putting out. You said there might be an album with Post Malone? Uh, there was talk about it. He was definitely in the studio with Post Malone, um, and they definitely talked about doing an album when Post tweeted his like condolences and regrets after hearing the news. He like mentioned that their album will come out someday, but... Um, you know, it it was probably in the very early stages. He ju- Mac had just finished his own album. I think he was just starting to get back in the studio with like, figure out what was next. And as I said, there were all these jams with Thundercat, like hours and hours. Like he was actually, you know, he, he would jam instrumentally. So that's a whole other thing. Yeah. So I think um, you can hear it in the sound. Like I think that like when we say that it's like an improvisational album, it's a warm toned album. Um, I was obviously not in the studio with them, but from like everyone that I've heard from it's a thing where they were kind of just hanging out of the studio trying a bunch of stuff play for a couple hours and then you edit it into like what he wanted the next thing to be and like his Divine Feminine is kind of the start of his albums sounding like they were recorded live yeah I mean one thing that became very clear uh, when upon his death was how sort of personally beloved he was uh, from you know there were a bunch of journalists who were actually really tight with him there were a lot of musicians who considered him a, a close friend, you know, for, and, and that goes, you know, and, and it goes up and down the spectrum in, in all sorts of various genres. And the thing is, he, he was, uh, you know, I, w- I was listening back and reading back my interview. We posted more of it uh, last week. He was a really sweet guy. I mean, there were things I was challenging him gently on a few things. Uh, for instance, the fact that he had CeeLo on his album. A lot of people pointed to, you know, God, you have a, a guy who's accused of uh, nasty sexual crimes uh, on an album celebrating the Divine Feminine, not too cool. And he was just like really apologetic, like just sort of like couldn't even, like just was, I wasn't even aware, you know, like, and then, uh, you know, even on a milder note, which is my favorite part, the lyrics are uh, very similar to, um, thematically to one direction is that's what makes you beautiful uh which he said he'd never heard or heard of in his life but i said you know listen like that song got a bunch of criticism for saying that's such a cliched trope like oh you don't know you're beautiful that makes you even more beautiful it's so good and it's like why can't you know what you look like like why is that why are you making that a thing and he just was sort of horrified he'd never heard that critique before or even considered he literally was like oh man if i did something wrong like i apologize instantly which is not the usual reaction you get from an artist you usually either get defensiveness or just pleading ignorance. So I, I thought that was sort of hilarious and says something. I, I mean, literally, I can't remember ever bringing up a criticism to an artist where they just instantly kind of pleaded guilty and apologized having never heard it before. And I think that says something about his personality, you know? Yeah, I think the the biggest and longest running case of that was the fact that he was a white rapper um, working in like a black space. And he's obviously not the first. He's not going to be the last. A lot of people who have that kind of trajectory are very unapologetic and like refuse to really like reckon with it like there's a lot Mm. of well what do you want me to do about it um (laughs) i wanted to rap therefore i rapped and mac from the beginning and like throughout his career would challenge that 
he knew that he was kind of encroaching on something and he wanted to do it as respectfully as possible. He challenged his fans a lot. I think he was constantly having a conversation with himself about like who was listening to him and like how could he make the world a little better because he did have a through line to like a largely white audience. Like the reason he was popular was not necessarily because he was white, but that's definitely a thing that he was tapping into unintentionally or on his record labels part, probably a little intentionally. And I think that's the kind of person he was. He was willing to like think about different difficult things. He was willing to apologize. He was willing to take a step back. And like, you know, it's of a piece with his artistic development. He always thought about like how to become a little bit better than he was the day before. Yeah, he did even like a long conversation with Vince Staples, his friend, about, you know, sort of being a white rapper in the space of white rappers. And I asked him whether, like Macklemore, he if he ever literally questioned his right to be doing it. And he said no. And certainly not in a song. He certainly never repeatedly wrote songs in which he claimed to write to question his right to do it, which was more of the Macklemore move. But you know, he but he did. He had a very thoughtful answer. You know, he's he was thoughtful. He he was thinking about this stuff all the time. You know, he was, you know, post Malone. The first time he was asked about sort of race and rap, he acted like it was the first time he'd ever thought about it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I mean? He never yeah. even considered the question. Well, I mean, we're talking about two extremes here. I don't, I don't yeah. know if that's really fair to make the comparison. And if you know. If you know Vince, um, if you've ever met him or like read an interview with him, he's not like if you haven't thought about this stuff, he's not the guy you want to like jump into no, jump no, into an interview with. You don't want to have an hour long conversation with him having never thought about that yeah. issue before you're gonna get destroyed. But I think Mac kind of gravitated towards the writers, thinkers, artists that like were thinking really hard about this stuff and he was like, Let's talk about it a little bit. Like he knew that there was a lot to learn. And I also asked him about his sobriety, um, which is always a, a tough thing to talk about because you're always aware that it's a, a work in progress by definition and uh, without being exploitative let's hear what he had to say about that the planet has a certain gravity man it, it rises in the morning it sets at night huh. I never really followed that that it ever but now I do you know I go to sleep at night and wake up in the day right and that, that's been a, a, a beautiful balance in my life huh did you used to stay up all night recording, and now you work more normal out? Oh yeah, I mean, I I just I have a lot more of a life. So. Yeah, that's good. Life is good. <laughs> is it a, is it a challenge still? Life is good. <laughs> is it a challenge still? Um, it, it, I guess I mean, it's always a challenge for most for most people. Yeah, there, it, it's it's just like a different a different way of life for me. Like I uh, sometimes it's a challenge, but. For the most part, it's 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 a blessing. Has it changed the way you create? Um, honestly, I I feel like everything I capture a lot more real emotion, like especially with my voice. Mm. Like I uh, and and I and I'm not forcing anything. Like that's one thing is I like I like never be able to walk away from a song unfinished. So I would stay up for days and days at a time working on one song. So mm. like now like. I'm able, like, I'm able to, like, recognize when I'm inspired and when I'm not, and work during times I'm inspired, you know? And just, like, my voice is a lot more of an instrument now. I'm able to use it in a lot more different ways, and it's just, it, I just sound more awake. What's your philosophy as a, as a producer? Like, who, who are the people you admire when, as far as that... Well, like, it's, it's everyone from, like, you know, like a Rick Rubin idea of, of, like, just overseeing things, which I've really loved 
and just like trying to get people to capture that emotion and, and to dig deep into what they're writing about and, and just like giving chase. And then also like, I try and do as many things as possible. That's kind of my whole thing with producing is, is I try and come in sometimes as somebody who doesn't even put my hands to a set of keys and like, just like direct the situation to like sitting down and making a whole beat from scratch of Ableton. Um, it's like pick one thing because I'm still figuring it out. Like to me, I haven't, uh, I haven't, you know, like picked a single lane and I don't know if I ever will. Hmm. You're listening to Rolling Stone Music now, and that uh, that was uh, me, Brian Hyatt, with Mac Miller, who passed away recently. Brendan, his final album, unfortunately, um, Swimming, is probably his best. It came out in August. Mm-hmm. Came out and, about a month ago. And it, uh, it, it continued, really, what was going on in Divine Feminine, though emotionally, to me, it's, it's darker, for sure. It's much darker, yeah. yeah. Um, deals a lot different stuff. I think it is a much tighter album than Divine Feminine. If they like, if Divine Feminine took them on this jazz-inflected live instrumentation sound, this was really another iteration on that. Like he tightened all the screws. It feels where Divine Feminine kind of meanders a lot and like is confident in that. He's writing like really tight songs that like feel more honed in and like more urgent. The first track, uh, "Come Back to Earth," really speaks a lot to where his head's at. Uh, the first line is, "My regrets look like texts I shouldn't send," uh, and then there's this repeated thing that is pretty haunting. I'll do anything for a way out of my head, um, but let's hear that song if we can. Reality. I mean, he told me that he was determined to get better every single time. And also that with Divine Feminine, I meant to say this earlier, Brennan, you were saying that, you know, you and other people, everyone was surprised by the album. He said he was surprised that people were surprised, (laughs) you know, because for him, I think he knew he had these capabilities, but... It's listen. It's it's always sad when someone who's twenty six years old dies. It's sad when someone who's a talented artist dies. It compounds it when you realize this guy was a guy who really was getting better by leaps and bounds. You know. <laughs> yeah, I've been talking about his career in like these three acts. Like he does the party stuff, then he gets into this like avant garde rap, and then he starts to get into these like jazzy, more songwriting based albums and. There's no indication that, like, the third act was the final act. Like, I think I was really excited to hear and always thought I would hear, like, the fourth and fifth and sixth act of Mac Miller. And the exciting thing about, like, watching him develop was you had no idea what those were going to sound like. Like, he just kept getting better and more interesting. I think that of his catalog, he didn't have, like, a clear masterpiece, although Swimming gets the closest but there was, wasn't a whole lot of doubt among the people who were paying attention that like he would have one under his belt right. in that, the next couple of years. That's what's so frustrating. Is it was clearly what, like all these albums have their flaws and stuff. And it's like, it, it, you know, and he was so young, it's clear that he was probably working up to something, you know. Yeah. But uh, there was there was a real like greatness was still on the horizon for him. And like, but there wasn't that much doubt that he would reach it. Yeah. We're going to shift gears a little bit and talk about a story that uh, Brittany wrote for Rolling Stone. Uh, called Ariana Grande, Mac Miller, and the Demonization of Women in Toxic Relationships. And to give a little backstory, when Mac died, apparently of an overdose, 
there was a crazy thing online where people sort of literally blamed Ariana for breaking up with him and, you know, purportedly breaking his heart and leading to this and not supporting him purportedly through his addiction. Uh, But that was actually picking up on, as you wrote, this previous thing where some random dude tweeted, Mac Miller getting a DIY after Ariana Grande dumped him for another dude after he poured his heart out on a 10-song album to her called The Divine Feminine is just the most heartbreaking thing happening in Hollywood. And she she basically said, like, how dare you say that someone should stay in a toxic relationship because he wrote an album about them? Mm-hmm. Like, it's just, like, why do women have to be the caretakers? Why are they responsible for the well-being of someone with the, a, a substance problem? Right. I mean, the thing with Ariana and Mac to note is that they were very under the radar for the two years that they actively dated. Like, they weren't a tabloidy couple at all. There weren't a lot of stories about them. They just kind of went on about their lives. And then this year, especially, there was a just, like, this really crazy timeline of... They had their breakup and then Ariana started dating Pete Davidson and that because of the relationship and just how wacky people thought it was. And then later the engagement, it was followed a lot. And then Mac got into a car accident, a DUI and got a DUI from that. So there was a lot of things happening at once. And with that, there was a lot of people coming out and blaming Ariana in the same way. I mean, not to the extreme of what happened after Mac's death, but after the DUI, her comments on Instagram and Twitter and across, you know, just these social media platforms were very much, you did this to him in the same way that it would come back later. So she did end up responding to just one of the fans. I don't think she even responded to a lot of other tweets, but that was kind of the most cogent of the tweets that were sent to her. (laughs) And she did really lay out, like you said, this idea that they were in a toxic relationship and a lot of friends of Max have spoken out and in defense of her and said that a lot of their relationship was her trying to help him stay sober and be a support system for him. And it's clear that because she couldn't be the caretaker or mother in this way that we expect women, especially in these really toxic dynamics of dealing with someone who is addicted in a relationship, she has been sort of the, the blame for this. You did connect it to the, the you know the purported Yoko effect and mm-hmm. and the idea it's like that Courtney Love got blamed for Kurt Cobain's death to the point where people were doing con- conspiracy theories that somehow she you know perpetrated it which is so preposterous so there is this this weird temptation to cast things that way it's a, it's a cultural sickness really yeah especially for famous relationships and when there is this very like tabloidy element and we have a more outspoken woman in the relationship and there are these kind of demons that the male figure is dealing with. I think it's easier for, especially really fervent fandoms, the ones like that Mac Miller has or that Nirvana has, like that it's easier to blame the woman who's closest to them for kind of whatever downfall we deem or whatever happens to them. I mean, how do you see it related to the Yoko Ono thing is just that that if something goes wrong people just want to blame the woman <laughs> yeah that basically is yeah, yeah. That? I think I mean Yoko's obviously a very different situation and that's just with the Beatles breakup I mean no one's blaming her for Lennon's death but I think that that sort of dynamic of blaming the woman for something that happens that the fans can't control that's been a recurring theme in, in pop music especially for really famous couples yeah you know and she went on for in, into a very another super high profile relationship mm-hmm. that, that went into an engagement. It's so ridiculous really. And it's like a, a, a sickness of social media that people would actually post that kind of stuff. And I not for one second would he want that uh, clearly. 
Um, Ariana Grande, you know, it's she's now clouded by many tragedies. It's such a she's got such a fraught narrative mm-hmm. now as a pop star. It's wild. Yeah, I mean, just from the Manchester attacks last year and things like that, it's been a really really just wild year for her to deal with, especially as a 25-year-old pop star. And I think there, it was very clear with her and Mac that there was no like love lost between them and their friendship. They had known each other for four or five years and had worked together so much. And I think in a lot of their interviews and um, posts about each other after the breakup that the hard feelings weren't as much there. Brennan, how do you think that people are in the end, because people are going to have to now kind of take the sum of his career and sort of address it as a whole and, and look back at him. How are we going to remember him? I mean, fondly. Yeah. I think that, like I was talking about, there's this masterpiece that never came, but he still has a really, really large body of work that like spans a bunch of different stuff. And even just now, like going running through it today, seeing the artistic growth and then like also he has some just like hands down classic songs that I don't think he is going to be forgotten. For sure. So this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm Brian Hyatt, and I was in the studio with Brendan Klinkenberg and Brittany Spanos, and we celebrated the life of music of Mac Miller. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume, channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Download us as a podcast at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes. I read them all. But as always, thanks for listening, and we will see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.